Welcome to the Faculty Coffee Break Podcast, hosted by the Center for Advancement of Faculty Excellence, or as we like to call it, the CAFE, at St. Francis College in Brooklyn, New York. Rooted in a long history of faculty achievement and commitment to student success at St. Francis, the CAFE promotes research, innovation, and high-quality academic engagement through an evidence-based, equity-minded approach to teaching, learning, and faculty development. My name is Dr. Molly Mann, and I'm the director of the cafe and host of the Faculty Coffee Break podcast. Today, I'm delighted to share my conversation with Dr. Gerard Shaw. Dr. Shaw shares his journey from maître d'armes, or fencing master, to psychoanalyst, to professor of physical education. He holds a bachelor's degree from SUNY Binghamton and a master's degree in exercise physiology and doctoral degree in sports psychology from Columbia University Teachers College. Dr. Shaw also received a diploma as maître d'armes or fencing master from the Institut National des Sports in Paris, France. In addition to his work as a professor, Dr. Shaw is a state licensed psychoanalyst and has maintained a private psychotherapy practice for over 35 years. Dr. Shaw shares his pursuit of what he calls a fabulous life and a satisfying, fulfilling career. We talk about his journey into academics, how he uses movement, narrative, and goal setting in the classroom, and the importance of the mind-body connection to learning. Let's get into the conversation. I got into higher education primarily through uh, my passion, which was fencing. I fenced in high school and college. And after college, I attended um, the National Institute of Sports in Paris. And I got a degree after two years of study as a maître d'armes, which means master of arms. And my passion, as I said, was fencing. And, um, And that was my entree into higher education. I got um, advanced degrees and um, worked my way up. And, um, and here I am at St. Francis. Um, and that's the, uh, that's the short story of a, of a long story. Great. Well, let's get into the details. So tell, you grew up in, in Crown Heights. Um, tell me how you got interested in fencing and how you got involved in fencing. Oh, sure. I, it was, um, I think, uh, the way most things happen, completely randomly. It was, uh, I had a friend who, uh, in high school, I met as a freshman at uh, Brooklyn, Tech, Brooklyn Technical High School, and uh, he was trying out for the fencing team, and I decided to go with him, and he didn't make the team, but I did, and um, I fenced for four years on the Brooklyn Technical High School fencing team, which was, at that time was... Um, um, an excellent team, and we always made it to the finals of the New York City Championships, always met our rival um, Stuyvesant High School, and in the finals, always lost to Stuyvesant. And uh, so I worked my way up uh, through the ranks, and when I was a senior on the varsity team, again, we made it to the finals, and again, we met our arch rival Stuyvesant, and again, we lost Stuyvesant in the finals. Um, after I graduated, I attended um, a state university um, college up in uh, Binghamton, State University of New York at Binghamton, and I thought I would never fence again. And um, again, just by chance, um, this, the school had uh, hired a, um, a professor of physical education who was a, uh, an Olympic fencer. And um, um, I fenced with him for four years, a very inspiring individual, completely devoted to fencing, a remarkable athlete. He was on two Olympic teams, uh, two successive Olympics, um, very um, 
just an outstanding person. Um, and uh, once I graduated from Binghamton, I thought to myself, well, what am I really good at and what do I love? And the answer to both of those questions was fencing. And I did a crazy thing. I um, applied for this to the school run by the French government uh, in Paris. Uh, it was a um, it's a uh, huge complex devoted to all sports. Fencing was just one of them. And I entered into a two year program, uh, complete immersion in fencing. Uh, you know, uh, the French are very exact. And we uh, studied uh, how to give lessons, how to take lessons, group lessons, individual lessons, pedagogy. Um, um, what else? Uh, I, <laughs> the exam lasted a week, uh, morning and evening for, for a whole week. And I graduated first in my class, the first time every, any foreigner had graduated first in the class. I had to pick up my diploma from the police department because it was issued by the French government. Came back here to the States and immediately got five part-time jobs running around the city teaching at um, private high schools, uh, college uh, gym classes. I was the coach on the NYU fencing team. We won the NCAA championships. And uh, I also taught in a fencing club in the evenings. People come in after work and fence for a few hours and I was giving individual uh, lessons there. And um, uh, I was... Um, it was suggested to me that at that point, if I wanted to move into higher education, I needed um, um, advanced degrees. And what really interested me was exercise physiology. And I got a master's degree there uh, at Columbia University in, in, master, in um, exercise physiology, which really looks at how the body responds to exercise and how the body makes all these adjustments while you're exercising. And so this was a perfect program, perfect um, degree for me to get, which really helped me uh, train my athletes. I was interested in really creating um, and developing, uh, you know, excellent fencers. And this really helped me um, design my conditioning programs so that were, that were not based on any uh, myth, but really scientific principles. Uh, and while I was there, I learned about a, a doctoral program in uh, sports psychology. And so I once I finished the master's degree, I got a, uh, a doctorate in sports psychology, and um, that also helped me in my, in my teaching, and that helped me enter uh, into the uh, world of higher education, and that's pretty much, I worked at Brooklyn College for a number of years, and then I um, ended up here at St. Francis. I've been here for 15 years, and uh, love the school and love the uh, students that I work with. Uh, it's small, so nobody falls through the cracks. And I've been teaching fencing here as a phys ed course uh, for all the years that I've been here and enjoy it immensely. I love to see how my students who know, don't know anything about the sport work their way up. And eventually we have a tournament and they're officiating and um, uh, everyone has a great time. It's uh, one of the best courses that they've taken according to the evaluations that I've received from my, uh, from my students. So that's pretty much how um, I arrived here. And what is it about fencing that you love so much? What, what is it about the sport that really got you? It sounds like there was a moment where it just hooked you for life. Uh, so mm. tell us about that. Uh, well, fencing has been described as physical chess. You really have to um, uh, do a lot of thinking and evaluating your opponent, um, 
Of course, technique and conditioning are very important. The technique is extremely, de- you know, um, uh, demanding you, uh, you just don't become a great fencer after a year or two. You spend years uh, being, uh, you know, as a student of the sport. Um, so I always tell my students, you can be, uh, you can fence somebody who's bigger and stronger and faster than you are, and you can beat them uh, just by being smarter than they are. Uh, as in chess, you know, you have to um, anticipate your f- opponent, but also plan um, and set up your opponent. And deception is, is a very big part of fencing. Um, and so, you know, the the more thought you put into it, um, the more you're more successful you'll be. I can remember also another part to my interest in fencing. When I was younger, I used to bike ride all over the city. I was an avid bike rider and I loved going up uh, 6th Avenue through Manhattan up to Central Park. And I loved having all of these things coming at me, you know, pedestrians and cars and potholes. And I loved having to make very quick decisions and, um, and, and also go as fast as I could, not endangering anybody, but um, that was very exciting to be completely absorbed in the moment. And, um, and so that uh, is another part of fencing, to have to um, make these, uh, you know, very quick decisions. Um, one other aspect of it that I, I've thought about that uh, I think is very important, you're a participant, but you're also an observer. You're participating with in this dance with your opponent, but while you're participating and reacting reflexively and hopefully the right ways, um, you're also observing your opponent, um, reflecting, determining what your opponent is doing, what what your opponent has done, trying to formulate a a, a plan, and um, and so there's a smooth sort of a transition from one to the other. Uh, constantly during a fencing bout where you're reacting, but also uh, reflecting and coming up with, uh, you know, um, a plan, uh, a tactic. And uh, to me, that uh, that was all absorbing. Um, and as sports psychologists say, I was in the moment completely immersed and um, it absorbed me completely. I've had wonderful experiences in, with, in fencing that... Um, I feel I couldn't have had any in it with any other sport. I think it was, you know, it it was my passion. It was everything to me. Um, So I could talk on and on about fencing, but um, that's sort of the, um, I think the those are the basics, what appeals to me about it. So when you applied to the National Sport Institute, did you know then that you wanted fencing to or teaching fencing to be your career or were there other things that you were considering and you were you were kind of following your passion for the moment and trying to figure out next steps? Well, um, I. Hmm, that's a good question. I think I, I just wanted to continue pursuing my interest in fencing. As I said, it was a passion with me. Um, and I was 22 when I landed in Paris, and I knew that I was um, leaving um, the competitive world of fencing, although I still competed for many, many years when I got back to the States, but I was sort of committing myself to become uh, an instructor, a coach, a master of fencing, and um, in that way, I, you know, I set my course. I knew that that's what I was going to be doing next. But again, uh, 
what was most important to me was that I, um, I was involved in the sport and uh, working with people and, um, and teams and just, you know, bringing them along and really getting an enormous satisfaction and fulfillment in, uh, in the interaction that I would have with my students. So I think I knew pretty much by the time I got to Paris that this was going to be uh, uh, my initial um, prof- career profession, or, you know, what I was going to follow. And then from there, you know, that led me to higher education. I love how you describe fencing as uh, really a mental exercise as well as a physical one. Um, And you mentioned you have your doctoral degrees in exercise uh, or sports psychology. Um, And I'm really interested in this this kind of body-mind connection that it seems happens over and over again in in, uh, your career experiences as you describe them. Um, Do you want to talk a little bit about that more, about how how you see those two things connecting? Hmm. Uh, another good question. Uh, <laughs> I um, I think there's no separation between mind and body. I think they're all w- one of a, a you know large piece. Um, I do talk about that at great length in my sports psychology classes. That you know we as humans uh, have uh, uh, a great ability to associate to be able to. Um, put things together and make have one thing uh, lead us to something else. Um, and so in fencing, there's really a complete meeting of mind and body so that it's, um, you know, you're operating on a, 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 eventually after many years of fencing, I felt I was really operating on a, a lot of my decisions were unconscious. Uh, you know, I talk a lot about a peak performance state where uh, the uh, attention and the concentration is so um, so uh, focused uh, that uh, there's no obvious there's no awareness of anything else going on uh, around me. And um, a lot of uh, professional athletes have spoken about this kind of experience where um, you know, what we say in the moment, and it's sort of what um, I think. Uh, Meditation helps to bring people to, uh, and a lot of other, act, you know, other activities. But for me, this was my way of getting there. Um, I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah, it, it sounds like what I have heard described as like a flow state. Yes, yes, flow state is very similar um, to the peak performance state. Uh, the only difference, really, is that. Um, in the peak performance state, not only are you completely focused, tunnel vision, time seems to slow down. I didn't feel as if I was fencing, but I was being carried along by this uh, greater power. And uh, as an additional uh, part to this is that I fenced the best I ever fenced. It was uh, at a national championships. I was part of a team representing my club. And um, I fenced, uh, I was undefeated the entire day. I achieved the highest level of performance, but it was effortless. I was just being, I was just carried along. I never had that experience before or after, but uh, of course I had been fencing for hmm, about 16 years by the time I got there. So uh, my experience and my technique and conditioning and my tactical sense was really, you know, refined refined at that point but um 
it it was it's the only difference as far as I know with flow is that you may not have a, a, um, reach a, a, a high achievement you don't may not achieve the best performance but that goes along with the peak performance state so that as far as I'm I know that's the only difference between the flow state and the peak performance state but I I fenced I never fenced as well as I did on that day I I beat everybody <laughs> uh, the Olympic fencers and um, my team uh, uh, I think we t- we took second place nationwide we only lost to one club another club in New York City as as a matter of fact but uh, it was an, an exceptional, uh, remarkable experience that I talk about a lot in my sports psychology class. This is what you know every athlete would like to achieve uh, in the sport, in the experience. You describe that so beautifully. I'm picturing like a, a scene from The Matrix or something, you know, where everything slows down and, and you yeah. can just respond. Yes, yeah. and I, it's it's. It's an uncanny uh, experience because I did the right thing at the right moment, but there was no effort. Um, and I sort of gave myself up to something that seemed um, larger than myself and um, and um, very attentive. You know, every move my opponent made, you know, athletes are always trying to read their opponent's mind by reading their body, which helps me in my teaching and in my therapy, um, uh, not my therapy, but the therapy I do with uh, patients. And, um, you know, it's, um, it was just at a level, uh, the highest level that I had ever experienced. Yeah, so you have a, a private practice um, in, uh, in psycho, uh, psychoanalysis, is that, is that right? Yes, while I was in graduate school getting a master's degree and a doctoral degree, I also attended a psychoanalytic institute and I went through many years of training and um and I have a degree and I'm a state licensed psychoanalyst and I've had a small private practice for over 30 years which I find also absolutely fulfilling and satisfying and um interestingly enough I think um, those two aspects of uh, fencing uh, that I talk about um participant observer is very much uh, at work in the uh, therapeutic uh, environment where I'm participating and responding to the patient, but also reflecting constantly as to what what's going on and uh, what the you know what my patient's needs are and what they're uh, you know what they're striving for, what their issues are, and so and, and timing is everything, as we know, not only in fencing, but in therapy as well. So there, there are a lot of comparisons. Of course, my patient is not my adversary, of course, uh, but um, <laughs> I, I, I could talk for hours about the, uh, the, two, um, the two areas that I've committed myself to. I just find them, just find the experiences um, absolutely uh, fascinating and fulfilling. Uh, and the third one, third area is uh, the teaching. My teaching, uh, my students, uh, um, when they're in my classroom, I make a point of reading their minds by reading their bodies. And if they're uh, expressing something that they don't you know, put into words, I'm able to translate that and uh, work with them in that way. So uh, um, I find that the my skills uh, can be applied in many different areas. 
That's a wonderful point. There's there's uh, so much anticipation and interpretation and in teaching where you're trying to understand where your students are coming from so that you can provide them with the resources and materials that they will need. Right. Not only where they're coming from, but where they're at in the classroom. Uh, you know, I can I can tell when a student's confused, not getting getting it or <laughs> Uh, drowsy, you know, uh, spacing out or uh, any number of things. And um, I've, I have some pet peeves about education that I think a lot of students who come to college have uh, become um, passive recipients of knowledge and don't really, and not, not their fault. I think they've been trained to be very passive recipients and not taking a really an active part in their learning. And so I've, tried my best to get them to be more actively involved and participate in their in the learning process so that they're just not sitting there passively you know like you know I open up their skull and just pour in some information um, and I I think that's a failure of the educational system and and um, by the time they get to St. Francis they've been they've been they've learned how to sit there and just you know, take it all in. So I've really tried to, um, I guess, uh, leave that comfort zone and, and work. And it, it was a struggle, not only for them, but for me in my classes, because they ended, I ended up talking too much and my students ended up not talking enough. And so that has been my, my plan and my, um, and the focus of my uh, efforts uh, for many years now at St. Francis. And it's uh, it's difficult uh, role to break out of, not only for my students but for me. And uh, but I think I've made an impact. I think that we've gotten somewhere. Going back to that mind body connection and that that real synergy that you experienced when you were fencing, um, it occurs to me that as you you move um, further into uh, academics and into education, um, we emphasize the mind in those fields but not don't necessarily care for the body or or um think of the the body connection there um and and as you were just using that language of active and passive learning um you made me think about how much uh how much the body is important to to students that 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 active physical connection to learning um, Mm -hmm. that we just don't care for uh, traditionally in education absolutely i think um um, you know, we, we talk a lot about assessment these days in education. That's the hot topic. And, um, you know, physical educators, physical educators have, um, I think, an advantage in that they can see immediately if their students get it or not, because they can see how well their body is, you know, working out there. Um, and, you know, a, a math teacher can only find out whether their students get it after they after the instructor reads the uh, results of the quiz or the exam. And it's, um, uh, yes, I, I think the, uh, maybe the, the, the concept of mind body and, 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 and paying attention to the body in a learning environment has been um, neglected. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think it's, it's about time that we um, take that into consideration a lot more. But as I said, physical educators really are lucky in that they, you know, you can't fake it if you, you, you know, having trouble dribbling a basketball, uh, you know, or in my fencing classes, if they're not 
performing well, I know immediately and I can assess them and, and make an intervention. You know, there, my assessments inform my instruction right there immediately, you know, and, um, and so it's, there's a, it's a, it's a much better, you know, as you say, it's sort of a, a, a synergy and, 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 and I just find it so, um, well, I keep saying the same thing, but very satisfying to see my students gain skill, knowledge, um, a, a tactical sense of a sport that they had no uh, knowledge of before they met me. And uh, it's, we have a tournament at the end of the year and every student of mine just gets into it. It's friendly, but it's competitive. And they are, um, I think they get a lot out of the course and they find out a lot about themselves. They find out that, gee, I, I have to have some patience. I can't just rush in. I have to spend some time uh, understanding what my, my, what my opponent is doing. So it takes a lot of observation and patience and um, an ability to sort of synthesize, you know, observe and then put things together and, uh, and, and, and come up with something in a, you know, in a creative way. There's a lot of creativity going on there, too, as well. So how have you negotiated that for yourself? You started out in athletics and coaching um, and you moved into, you know, into your graduate study, which is traditionally very sedentary and psychoanalysis is another field that's traditionally sedentary. So how do you stay active? How do you stay engaged? Well, I, as I said, I was a competitive defensor when I got back from Paris and, oh, I guess at least 15 years or more, maybe 20 years, I competed. I went to different local competitions, even though I was teaching all week, I still had enough interest and energy to compete. And that was very satisfying. Um, and then once uh, fencing is a very demanding sport, uh, physically, you can't be a weekend fencer, you have to train, oh, you know, three, four times a week, um, in order to see any results. And so at some point, I actually, I can remember the day at a competition when I realized I was at the end when um, I lost a match and um, I didn't care. Uh, I sort of lost that drive. You know, if I had lost, I would have had a very different reaction. And so I turned from fencing and started uh, running and I had a treadmill at home and uh, I decided I would set a goal for myself of running five miles three times a week and uh, bring my time down. Even if it was just a couple of, you know, the whole idea of, personal best. I wasn't racing against anybody, but just trying to improve little by little, a couple of seconds off my last time in the five miles. And I went from a, from 45 minutes uh, for the five miles, which is a nine minute mile down to 30 minutes, uh, which is a six minute mile, which is not bad for an old guy. And uh, it was very, again, very satisfying. And once I um, had some trouble with my knees, I turned to cycling. And that was my uh, activity. And my son was old enough when we used to cycle together. Um, I'd cycle out to Eastern Long Island to the Hamptons for the weekend. Um, I did centuries, which is a uh, hundred miles in one day. Um, cycled in a lot of fundraising um, events to, you know, a two day cycling event. Uh, we're covering about 150 miles over two days. And, um, and that was how I replaced running and fencing and how I, you know, kept active. Um, 
and I still cycle. I still find that uh, uh, very satisfying. <laughs> I keep coming back to the same word. I'm sorry, but uh, there's a lot of sources of satisfaction and, and cycling. Well, I've been cycling since I, I used to cycle in high school and go camping, load up the bike with tent and sleeping bag and just go north with my friends and go as far as we could go. And yeah, great, great fun. And of course, uh, great um, way to keep fit, you know. And that's the other thing about fencing. You can fence until your 60s and, you know, presumably you get a little slower, but presumably you get a little smarter. And so you can beat a lot of people who, as I said, who are faster, but, you know, you have the knowledge that can help you. So uh, I've always managed to figure out a way to uh, remain fit and uh, through different activities. And in addition to active learning in your classroom and um, anticipating students' needs, um, I, I know that narrative and storytelling is also important to you in your teaching. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I always tell my students on the first day, look, I like to tell stories. And sometimes, um, very, I mean, very often, I'll come up with a concept and I can see <laughs> the light is not going on <laughs> over their heads. They're having trouble. So I say, tell them, I'm going to tell you a story. And um, what I find uh, following that practice is that, number one, they uh, helps them understand. And, I, and remember, these are pre-service teachers that I'm working with. And I said, so I realize I'm modeling teacher behavior every time I teach a class. And so I said, you know, if you have students who are having trouble with a particular concept, tell a story, illustrate it with an example, and you'll find that, uh, number one, they'll understand it better. You, you'll bring them to that understanding. And number two, that they will retain that information longer when they have a story associated with it. And I'll just give you one example, uh, the word association. I use that in um, when we talk about imagery in, in sports psychology and that uh, very often um, imagery is just one sense that we use that we can then use to associate to something else. But a sense, a, a smell can bring back a lot of memories. Uh, and that really something that I mentioned earlier, the term association. Human beings have this amazing capacity to associate one thing with another, whether it's a sight or a sound or a smell that can take you someplace. And uh, athletes make great use of this. And after I described what association is, again, I have to give a story. I said, when I go to the closet and take out my dog's leash, Kayla is my dog. And the minute she sees that leash, she goes nuts. She starts running around in circles, jumping up and down. And I say, why? What is, why does she do that? And of course, all my students say, well, she knows she's going out for a walk to chase the ball and chase the stick and go to the park. Uh, and I say, yes, but why? Well, she associates the leash with going out. And another dog might see a leash and have no reaction at all. And so I hope that by giving the story about Kayla and the leash and uh, illustrating the concept of association, again, sometimes they remember the story and that helps them retain that knowledge of what the term association means. But that's just one example. But I, I do that throughout the semester. Um, and, um, and I, and I've heard, gotten feedback from my students that this has, did help them, um, understand and, um, hold on to these, uh, this, this knowledge. 
and hopefully they will you know use make use of this when they're um, in the teaching uh, uh, role you know when they're out there in the trenches working with their kids uh, no matter where they are absolutely and in addition to to smell i'm sure movement is is another association if you're you know if you're moving your yes. body you're you're more likely to retain information yes. As a matter of fact, there's an, there's an article in the Times a couple of weeks ago about professional baseball players now exchanging or talking about um, perfume and that, um, you know, scent is a, an incredibly um, powerful means to bring back um, all sorts of memories uh, and um, athletes are trying to re- retain or or recapture a particular state of mind and a particular, um, just a particular state, a body state, a mental state. And sometimes um, they can associate a a scent, an odor with that state. And so every time they smell that, you know, they're counter it, uh, they get where they, you you see athletes uh, wearing headphones, they associate certain mental states, an emotional state with um, uh, music very, very powerful. And um, uh, so this is one of the the topics that I, you know, bring up and discuss in my sports psychology class. Interesting, fascinating stuff. Fascinating. (laughs) It really is. It really is. Yeah. Yeah. As a matter of fact, there's a, um, um, you know, the uh, idea of the placebo effect. Um, where people are told, you know, take this pill and your symptoms will disappear and it's just a sugar pill. And because they believe it's medicine, their symptoms disappear. And I give them example of it and after example of people who believe in getting the, the injection they're getting or um, their, uh, their medication they're getting is going to relieve them. And uh, a significant percentage of those people uh, uh, are cured, and uh, there's really no way of explaining it. You know, scientists are very upset not being able to determine what. And there's a mind-body connection, right? People who are told they're getting chemotherapy and they're not, they're, a lot of them have their hair falls out uh, because they believe they are getting chemo. That's wild. That's really uh, pretty far out, and uh, that's how you usually start my. Uh, semester with, in sports psychology, talking about the mind-body um, connection and how there are pathways there that we know occur, you know, and uh, we make use of a lot of that stuff. Uh, and, you know, people make fun of athletes because they're very superstitious. But, you know, rituals are important, uh, not just for athletes, to, to get them to be in the place they want to be, emotionally, physically, mentally. Um, Powerful stuff, absolutely. But you know, poorly understood at this at this point. So interesting. It yeah. is. It is. Yeah, and I I know goal setting is another big topic in your sports psychology course. Mm-hmm. Um, but what do you share with students about goal setting? Oh, that's a good question. Um, well, first, for one thing, um, you know, the different types of goals that you can set as for yourself and. Uh, a lot of people, you know, see the long-term goal, you know, I tell my students, oh, you know, Harry here wants to be a rock star. And if you think of your long-term goal, 
you can get lost in the clouds or and or it can be overwhelming. Uh, if I'm at the bottom of the hill in Prospect Park and I've got a big hill in front of me, if I look to the top of the hill, that's that's overwhelming. Uh, so what do I do? I chunk it down and I just look at the, you know, three feet in front of my front tire. And I my goal is to re- get from where I am to that spot. And then my next goal is to the next spot. And before I know it, I'm at the top of the hill. So, um, you know, uh, and it's um, it's a good exercise. I have my students write up three types of, you know, uh, goals, short-term and uh, mid, mid, middle goals and long-term goals, short-term goals, so that they, uh, you know, if you have a long-term goal, what are you going to do today? What are you going to do tomorrow to eventually get to that goal? Uh, also, goal-setting um, helps you direct your attention. For example, if I'm your, I'm your basketball coach and I say, you know, Molly, uh, you haven't do, been doing too many assists. Uh, your, your numbers of assists are very low. So let's set a goal that you're going to build up the number of assists during the game. Well, what happens? You start becoming aware of who's free, who's, who's available for a pass, where, you know, when and where. And, and, and so your, your attention is directed. Here's a story I tell them about that. I say, you know, when my wife and I decided we were going to have a family uh, and we were thinking about getting pregnant, all of a sudden I'm walking around the streets of New York. And what do I see that I never noticed before? Pregnant women. They're all over the place. You know, are, are they bussing them in from out of town? Uh, how come all of a sudden oh, there are all these pregnant women around? And I said, well, they were always there. But now that I'm thinking about, you know, pregnancy and having a family and having a baby, now I'm noticing something that I never paid attention to before. So goal setting is, those are a couple of examples of how powerful goal setting is. Um, it's also very um, motivating. You know, another example, on Saturday morning, I make a list, go to the cleaners, uh, go to the shoemaker, um, go to the hardware store. And so I, it's very satisfying when I do one of those things, I can cross it off the list. And uh, when you reach your reach a goal, it's very motivating. You feel, oh, I reached that goal. Now I can get to the next one and the next one. Um, so goal setting is is motivating. It, it directs your attention, and it keeps you um, um, directed because you're not overwhelmed by the long term goal that is so far ahead of you. And you chunk it down to something manageable, something doable. And, um, and I have them, you know, write out some goals that they have for themselves. And invariably, they don't come up with, well, what am I going to do today and tomorrow, like strategies. Uh, And that's always left out. And so we have to, you know, refine that work on that. Um, But it's a, it's a huge uh, intervention in among athletes, sports psychologists use goal setting uh, all the time, 99% of athletes are uh, making use of that particular intervention with great v- results, positive results. And those are two things, associations and goal setting, that seem really important to education as well and to student ah. success in education that I don't know that they necessarily, um, it's not necessarily embedded in a lot of curricula, um, but they seem like really important strategies that would cross over from um, athletic performance to mm-hmm. academic performance. Well, there's a lot of talk these days about SLO, student learning outcomes, which are goals. 
you know, it's if you want to make it, uh, you know, distill it, a student learn, you know, what are, what are your what are your learning outcomes for your students? And um, um, there's another term, backward mapping, where you take a goal and then you work backwards so that every time I meet my students, I say, what everything I'm going to do today brings us one step closer to that ultimate learning outcome. And so um, I think um, goal setting is sort of, uh, you know, becoming the flavor of the week in education. <laughs> and, uh, and uh, you know, along with assessment, that's a, that's a big topic right now going forward. Um, one other thing I'd like to say about goal setting, um, you know, athletes always want to win. And one of the worst things you can do is tell an athlete, um, our goal is to win. Now, of course, we want to win, but um, is winning completely under our control? No. Uh, you can train, you can do your best, you can work hard, but the team might be a better team. You might get a bad call by the officials. Uh, any number of things can go wrong. And so... Um, you're better off as a coach to set goals that are individually set for um, custom made individual for the, your individual so that, you know, a kid might come in fourth in a um, cross country race, but he took 10 seconds or 20 seconds off his best time. If so that you set a goal, like I want you your goal is to take 10 or 20 seconds off your best time in this race. And so he might, that kid might not win the race, uh, because there might be runners who are better, you know, if you set a goal of winning and you don't, well, the hell with this goal setting, it's, it's for the birds and it's very discouraging. But if you set a goal of say, for example, increasing your number of assists, Molly, in the basketball game, your team might lose, but you had the best number of assists ever, or you took 20 seconds off your cross country time. That's encouraging. That's motivating. Kid comes back and say, gee, I did, I reached that goal. What's my next goal, coach? You know, what are we working towards? So um, setting a goal of winning, even though we all want to, um, can be very, very damaging, very destructive. Uh, so I wanted to get that in <laughs> as part of the discussion about goal setting. And I, I get a lot of arguments from my students at St. Francis about, well, of course we want to win. And as a competitive athlete, I can well um, understand that. But there's more to it. There's more com complexity there. We have to appreciate that. Absolutely. That's such an important message and I think applies to so many different circumstances. Absolutely. We are a product-oriented society, you know, so that uh, our athletes go to uh, the Olympics, they come back and they took fourth place. You know, you only get a medal if you were first, second, third. So Americans say, oh, you're a loser. <laughs> you came in fourth. You didn't come home with a medal. People don't realize what a what a achievement it is to make the Olympic team. How much hard work to get there, um, for one thing, and you know the sacrifices and so on. So um, we have to get past the product and get into more, you know, of course, the process and um, and and the achievement, uh, the personal achievements. Absolutely, and I think that applies to uh, education as well. Absolutely. What a wonderful note to end on. Uh, Jerry, thank you so much for, for joining the podcast and for chatting with me. Um, you've had such a, a rich array of experiences in your life and in your career. Um, and thank you so much for sharing them.
Thank you for listening to the Faculty Coffee Break Podcast, hosted by the Center for Advancement of Faculty Excellence at St. Francis College. If you enjoyed today's episode, we hope you'll share it with a friend or colleague and leave a rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to know more about today's episode, please visit our webpage for show notes and transcripts. And join us again soon for more conversations about innovative pedagogy, curriculum design and assessment, and faculty development. The primary purpose of the Faculty Coffee Break podcast is to educate and share ideas for teaching and learning, curricular and co-curricular design, and faculty development. The podcast does not constitute advice or services, and the views expressed on the podcast do not necessarily reflect those of St. Francis College. Thank you.